Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Southwest Radio Ministries and Watchmen on the Wall are celebrating 90 years of proclaiming the truth that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Today, we once again go to the Radio Vault to listen to a 2009 program with Dr. Jack Wheaton discussing the power of music. Before we do that, though, I want to let you know about our next in-person conference. The speakers you hear on this program will be coming to Wichita, Kansas, Friday and Saturday, May 5th and 6th at Sunrise Christian Academy. Speakers include our very own Dr. Larry Spargimino, Staff Evangelist Josh Davis, Greg Patton, Dr. Rob Lindstead, Michael Hoggard, Micah Van Huss, and Dr. Lonnie Shipman. Some of the topics that will be covered include Secrets of the Vatican, Israel and the Temple Mount, Who Owns It and Who Cares?, Real World of the Spirits, The Earth as It Was, Secret Societies, and much, much more. Clarity to the Chaos Conference, Friday and Saturday, May 5th and 6th at Sunrise Christian Academy in Bel Air, Kansas. For all the information and to register for this free conference, visit our website, swrc.com, and click on Events. That's swrc.com and click on Events. Or simply call 1-800-652-1144 and let us know you'll be there. Music can be understood and felt by all of humanity. Dr. Jack Wheaton spent his lifetime playing, writing, conducting, and teaching music. Here is Dr. Wheaton and Dr. Larry Spargimino from 2009 discussing the power of music. The practitioners of music are more than artists, they are also alchemists. They help to make life bearable, they aid in advancing the causes of freedom, and they can actually minimize emotional and physical pain. And that is only the beginning of the amazing power of music. That's from the back cover. And, of course, we do know that music has power. And one of our concerns is the kind of music that's creeping into the church today. And we're going to be talking about many, many of these issues. And in a few minutes, we'll tell you how you can get your own copy of the amazing power of music. Dr. Wheaton, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. There are so many places that we could begin, but on page 32 and then also on page 39, you speak about our biocomputer, and then you speak about behavior modification. And I get the impression that music can actually affect our biocomputers and change behavior for good or for bad. Maybe tell us a little bit about that as we get into your wonderful book. Well, the human brain is the most complex organ on the planet that's been the model for all the computers in the world, but no one of them have come close to even touching what the brain can do. The brain has three levels. The highest level, those little wiggly lines you see, if you see a picture at the top of a brain, that's called a cerebral cortex. And that part of the brain is the start of our logical memory and, and, and our ability to logically deduct things in our environment. The next, right below that, is a smaller brain about the size of a large fruit, and it's called the seat of emotions. This is the part of the brain that triggers emotion. And below that is the final brain, it looks about the size of a tennis ball, maybe a little bigger, that sits right on top of our spine. 
And that brain controls all our automatic nervous system. While we're sitting here talking, our body, uh, we're breathing, our heart's pumping, and other organs and chemicals are being released into the bloodstream. All this is being under control of this small little brain that's at the top of the spinal column. The thing with music that makes it so powerful, more powerful than any of the other art forms, is that music comes in through the ear, and it's wired to go right into the what we call the midbrain, that part of the brain that sits in the middle, that's the seat of our emotions. What this means is that music can trigger feelings and emotions without our control. You don't have to like a piece of music to react to it. Your body will react and your emotions will react whether you like it or not. So it's incredibly powerful. It bypasses the logical part of the brain. So that's why we have such a problem when people don't understand this. Music can actually be used as a self-administrating drug because it triggers some other things. And I discovered all this one day when I was sitting at the piano, and I had spent my life in music as well as serving the Lord as a Bible teacher. My father had been a musician, my grandfather had been, and so forth. I thought, what is this thing that is so powerful, that how it affects people so dramatically, and how does it work? And that happened about 10 years ago, and that's when I started doing research on the book. Well, certainly... A lot of parents, a lot of adults are deeply concerned about the effect of music on their young people and on adults as well. We know that so many churches have departed from the standard hymns and have introduced all kinds of new music, and people are very much concerned about that. Now, you do mention that there was a lab test where uh, I believe it was 12 teenagers played the game Memory, and four of them listened to rock, four listened to classical, and four did not listen to music at all. Those who listened to rock had the poorest performance by a wide margin. Those who did not listen did okay, but those who listened to classical music kept enhancing their scores, and you give the the quotation. So obviously uh, there are so many studies of this sort that music can actually modify behavior, so you're absolutely right according to the title of your book, The Amazing Power of Music. It's really amazing. Well, what a lot of people don't understand is that there was a dramatic revolution that took place in the 60s. It was a cultural revolution, the era of the hippies, it feels good, do it, and that's when rock music really broke loose. And rock music is a drug. It triggers certain things in the body that are very similar to taking a methamphetamine or benzedrine or dexedrine, a stimulant type of drug. Now, the way this works is that when you hear that loud backbeat, particularly of the drummer, where it goes boom, chicka doom, chicka on that on two and four, that's noise. The brain interprets that as noise. Well, the brain has a subconscious protective mechanism. Sudden loud noise represents danger. So the brain sends a signal when it hears sudden loud noise to the adrenal glands. And the adrenaline glands dump adrenaline into the body, and adrenaline is a tremendous stimulant. And it's called a fight-or-flight syndrome, because what it does is it gives the person a sudden extra burst of energy to be able to turn and run from from a difficult environment or danger or to stay and fight it. So that's why rock music is so popular. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed that most of the music comes out sounds pretty much the same. I mean, you can hardly understand the lyrics. They're pretty non-intelligible and pretty nonsensical. The chord progressions are pretty repetitive, and yet they keep selling this stuff by the ton. And that's because it's the younger kids particularly are using it to get high on. I remember when I was teaching the community college, I parents came in and talked to me about their kid that was very having a problem with him and and I said well is he on drugs and they said no as far as we know he is he's not smoking marijuana or any of this other stuff I said is he listening to loud heavy metal rock music and they said yes I said well he's on drugs he's self-medicating he's he's self-medicating himself with a stimulant and that's the thing that they've kept hidden there's so much money in the rock industry I think it's about 12 to 15 billion dollar year industry that they managed to keep this fact hidden, just like cigarettes were able to keep hidden the tremendous danger in smoking for so long. And I think we're right on the same verge of breaking loose and understanding the, what this music can do that we were and finally beginning to understand what cigarette smoking could do. Well, friends, we're visiting with Dr. Jack Wheaton. He is the author of a new book. He's written several books, actually, but we've got a new book entitled The Amazing Power of Music, and we're speaking about the amazing power of music. Dr. Wheaton is an expert in the field, a long, long list of credentials. He's been on our program many times before. He's spoken in our conferences, so I think this, Jack, is kind of your magnum opus. You've got so much in here. This is the scope of the amazing power of music is just so expansive. It covers just about everything that anybody would ever want to know about music. And coming from you and with all of the sources that you cite, I think it's a tremendously helpful volume. But you know, you have a chapter, chapter 19, I guess we'll jump ahead to that, rock music in the church, and you speak about Costa Mesa and about Chuck Smith and so forth, and the whole come-as-you-are idea, the cutoffs, the sandals, the beards, the long hair, and the rock music, and of course the idea is to reach out, to be culturally relevant and so forth. What kind of guidelines can you give us regarding when relevance becomes compromise. I mean, everybody wants to be relevant, and no doubt Jesus was relevant to use fishing parables, uh, the, sower, the, the parable of the sower, and so forth. But when does relevance become compromise regarding Bible truth? If somebody gave you something to drink, and you knew that it was poisonous, it could seriously damage your body or possibly even kill you, chances are you wouldn't drink it. But if it was all dressed up in a nice, attractive package, and there was a lot of other people doing it, and the destructive side of it was not visible, that visible, you'd be under tremendous pressure, social pressure, young kids are, to, to listen to this kind of music. Then you begin to find out these deleterious effects that, that, that happen when it happens. What had happened in the church music about... In the 1950s, it started to introduce more and more pop music styles. And the rationale into the church service, the rationale behind this was this will attract more young people. Well, there's not a study out that I've been able to find that proves this. In fact, there's a lot of studies that show that young people do not want to go to church and hear really poorly played rock music. They want to go to church to worship, just like the rest of us. And that kind of music's not worshipful. The reason it's not worshipful, regardless of the lyrics, is that music, the music always overpowers the lyrics. 
And this fight-or-flight syndrome, when the music's loud and it's got a heavy backbeat, triggers this reaction automatically. You, just, you can't stop it. And so you've got people who are supposed to be centering themselves in, in worshiping our God, and instead they're getting themselves all hyped and pumped up. And churches are rationalizing that this is the outbreak of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. Well, it's not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't have you up there shaking your hips like you're in some kind of hippie nightclub at 2 in the morning, you know. And it's so sad. And they'll point to the lyrics. Well, this is, see, look at the lyrics. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about love. It doesn't matter what the lyrics are. If the music is loud, repetitive, syncopated, and that heavy backbeat, it'll trigger this every time. And so then when the pastor comes time for the message, Instead of having everybody centered, quiet, calmly waiting with a full rational mind, they're all turned up. They're all turned up, you know, cranked up. And so their their chances of remembering what's said have become seriously modified. That's as you just pointed out in that example from, from the book about the students. Students listen to rock music. They lost a great portion of their ability to recall what was going on. Friends, I really want to highly encourage you to get a copy of, of this book, The Amazing Power of Music. In fact, you know, Jack, I'm, I'm looking at your chapter 18. You have a whole list of really great quotations. For example, there's one here by Doron K. Antrim, a psychologist who found that music does things to you whether you like it or not. Fast tempos invariably raise your pulse, respiration and blood pressure, slow music lowers them. And then there's another one here by John Erskine. Music is the only language in which it is hard to say a mean or sarcastic thing. Hey, that's that's pretty powerful. And then there's also um, something from a Dr. Colwell at Scripps Hospital in La Jolla, California, music and surgery. How did you decide on which quotes to put in your book? Well, I went to a ton. <laughs> you had a ton thousands of, of <laughs> on the internet. The two medical friends who were in, the, who were in medicine. I have a couple of doctor friends who helped me. Were looking for stuff. But I tried to filter out and grab the things I thought were the most meaningful. But there's a lot of research now going on about music because music therapy was introduced into our hospitals and in, into other places in our society after World War II. There were so many people coming back from the war that had been emotionally damaged by the war, and they found that music was a wonderful way to calm them down and and help them get back into society. And so the whole music therapy movement started in the first university to really have a degree, and it was University of Kansas. Now it's become a major, major factor in medicine to the point where dentists are giving patients the option of a mild medication, chemical medication, or music when they're doing some mild surgery, but discomforting. It's being played in the operating room, for which even though the patient's under, it still affects them, and it affects the doctors doing the surgery. You mentioned Dr. Caldwell. Dr. Caldwell's what did the surgery on my, I had a knee replacement several years ago at Scripps Clinic in Torrey Pines. He was one of the top experts. When I went in for surgery, I asked him if they would uh, play my CD of favorite hymns. And he said, fine. And so they played it, and he came up to see me afterwards. He says, you know, we like that CD so much. Can we keep it and play it for other surgeries? And I says, oh, well, you know, I thank the Lord, because I thought, oh, boy, this is great. Yeah, because that's the kind of music that's going to help them get through that kind of surgery. 
I'm reading from page 149. He says, a little soft jazz, or maybe the sound of ocean waves piped into the operating room, along with whispers of encouragement from doctors and nurses, might help post-surgery patients get back on their feet. Swedish researchers found that patients soothed by music and words of comfort during surgery have less pain and fatigue during recovery. So certainly that says something about the amazing power of music. You know, as I was reading your book, and I did read it from cover to cover, I'm a fast reader and I like to read, you know, when I'm going to be interviewing a guest, but you speak about cultural revolution of the 60s, and of course we do know that music overpowers lyrics. So, you know, the lyrics can have one message, but if the music has another message, people are really going to hear the other message from the music. But the question I, that, that comes to mind, and I know people often raise it, you know, we look at some of the Psalms, especially 148, 149, 150, and that, that raises this question, is there any place in worship for maybe rhythm? And of course, not the offbeat, but maybe for rhythm and some kind of a physical expression, more than sitting in our pews holding a hymnal. Is there any place for that, or am I kind of treading on dangerous ground? No, there is. We have a friend, Barney Kasdan, who's a pastor of a, a Messianic Jewish group, and we attend his service every once in a while, and they have about 20 minutes of dancing before they start their official service. And the people get up and they join hands and they make this circle and the, the music is, is rhythmic but not loud and not overcoming. And it's a beautiful thing to watch and it, it really gives you a feeling of joy, of celebration of, of Christ and what he means and, and so forth. So, no, it, this, this is not an all-out attack against that kind of music. And it's, it's, the Jewish people have learned to use this and they're in their worship celebrations over the centuries, and they're very wise <laughs> in how right. they use it. Right. And I'm thinking when, you know, a lot of times today when we think of dance, we think of ballroom dance, where people that have low-cut dresses and they're drinking all kinds of booze and the lights are down low <laughs> and they're kind of close. But that's certainly not what is done in this Jewish Messianic congregation, nor is it what is suggested by the Psalms. Well, as you know, in the Old Testament, when King David was uh, moving the ark into Jerusalem, he was in front of the procession, and he was just so ecstatic and excited and full of joy that, that he just took out his outer garments. Now, it doesn't mean he was running around naked. He just had, just took off his robe and whatever. And everybody was just so joyful. And that's fine, but there's a kind of a point where the brain interprets danger and where it goes up to a certain point and you're okay, then past that is danger, and then this automatic reflex kicks in. And it has to do with the, the level of volume. I've said this before to pastors. I said, well, if you don't want to take this music out of your church, let me t- tell you this, at least turn it down. Why do you have to have it so loud? I mean, it doesn't help anybody to have it that loud. And they can't answer that question. We have to protect our hearing. I mean, <laughs> well, that's right. And just from once you get above a certain number of decibels, you're going to have hearing loss, especially if it's uh, kept up for 20, 30 minutes every Sunday or or whenever. But you raise so many really important issues and, and answer the issues that you raise. But on page 155, you know, you speak about how today people have tried to use pagan music in Christian worship to kind of contemporize or to make it 
culturally relevant. You, you speak about the several attempts in Scripture to use pagan music to attract or liven up a Christian worship service. It never happened. Okay, God is holy. And God does not need our cheap form of sleazy entertainment to attract true worshipers. In fact, who wants a person who is only half clean? We want people who are totally clean. So this idea of bringing pagan elements in is a very, very dangerous idea, and it really doesn't fit with the fact that we are called to be different and to separate ourselves from the world. The devil spends a lot of time trying to figure out how to compromise Christianity, and particularly worship. There's more there's, uh, devils and demonic beings hanging around churches on Sunday morning than there are hanging around bars on Saturday night. Doesn't They got the people in the bar already, but they're going after the people that are in the pew. So that's why this is a dramatic, dramatic battle between the forces of good and evil. You'll find in my book, as you probably probably realize, that, that in my study of pagan cultures, when I wrote all that jazz, the history of Afro-American music, several years ago, discovered that most of the primitive religions of the world had very syncopated music and beats are very similar to a lot of the beats and rhythms we have in our contemporary rock music. And these were used to call up demons and to actually take over possession of a particular person. Then people would go to that person who was possessed and ask questions. This is the heart and soul of several of the Latin American religions called Santeria in Cuba, Macumba in Brazil, and Voodoo in Haiti. These all are demon-calling religions. You go to Tibet, dark places like that, you'll find the same, same thing. So not only is the loud music not worshipful, you are bringing into the sanctuary possibly forces that are demonic But there's hard studies by George Otis wrote a wonderful book called The Hidden Labyrinth in which he went to all these dark places in the world and found a similarity of these things that were happening, which helped validate what I put in my book. Dr. Jack Wheaton's classic book, The Amazing Power of Music, is available today. All of life's major events are made more meaningful by music. Music helps to make life bearable. It aids in advancing the causes of freedom, and it can actually minimize emotional and physical pain. And that's only the beginning of the amazing power of music. Dr. Jack Wheaton spent his lifetime playing, writing, conducting, and teaching music, and he brings all of his experiences into this wonderful book. Order your copy of The Amazing Power of Music when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order at our website, swrc.com. Author and conference speaker Greg Patton comes now with another installment of Living in Today's World. If you're going to start a business, do you know that 90% of all new businesses fail within the first year? And we're at a time where if a marriage lasts a few years, it's great celebration. In other words, things seem to be changing in terms of longevity. It just doesn't last very long. Not so for Southwest Radio Church. Is it possible we're celebrating 90 years? Christian radio on the air for 90 years. That is just unbelievable. When it all began, just a handful of stations. And now 
hundreds and hundreds from coast to coast. Southwest Radio Church, recognizable names, of course, the founder, Dr. Weber. Noah Hutchings, listening to a little bit of him yesterday, and boy, it sounded so old-fashioned. His voice, very high-pitched, and for those of us who've been in radio a few years, you say, could that possibly work? Oh, when God's in a thing, it works, and prayer changes things. Reflecting back 90 years of Southwest Radio Church, and I wonder in those 90 years, how many people have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior? Let me tell you just one story from my associate pastor, Paul Smucker. He had his own church for almost 25 years in Grable, Indiana, and then he kind of retired. Next thing I know, he's in my church, and now he's helping me at the cross in Fort Wayne, Indiana. But here's the story. He was a former roofer. That was his business. And he carried his radio with him everywhere he went. His favorite program, Southwest Radio Church. Southwest Radio Church. And he cut his teeth listening every day to Southwest Radio Church and his understanding of the scriptures. He's never been to school for any formal training. And the guy has quite a story to tell. He is so scripturally sound, my friend. He teaches or preaches every Sunday at the cross, and uh, this man is such a big, big blessing to the Cross Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah, he credits most of his education and the things of God with Southwest Radio Church listening every day. Isn't that a great story? Oh, I'm sure there are bunches of them out there just like that. What has Southwest Radio Church done and the lives of people in the last 90 years. Quite a question, don't you think? Can you tell we're excited about our birthday? Southwest Radio Church broadcasts have been heard continuously since 1933, making it, no question about it, one of, if not the oldest daily religious programs on the air in America. The ministries of this non-denominational evangelical organization continue to grow in an effort to share the Word of God in a globe-circling strategy outlined by its founder, Southwest Ministries. Southwest Radio Church, instructional, evangelistic, missionary, and certainly prophetic in its purpose. I'm excited to report that I am personal friends with the president of Southwest, Dr. Kenneth C. Hill, have been for over four decades. What a leader. And then Matthew Hill, his CEO, has done such a tremendous job in just the last couple of years in leading Southwest. It is an exciting time for this ministry. So not only is it heard every day on this station, but monthly traveling around America, speaking in churches and auditoriums, again, from coast to coast. And, and they're increasing in their audio and video programs the written articles, so many books available with Christian themes, and, well, there's just a lot of things going on at Southwest Radio Church. Conferences, evangelistic outreaches, special meetings, all a part of what Southwest Radio Church is doing. Ninety years of serving Jesus through this ministry. We look forward to, and those who will follow, another 90 years as Jesus tarries. Thank you, my friend, for being a part and supporting Southwest Radio Ministries. With your prayers and your financial support, this radio ministry is going to continue to grow day by day into the future. What a blessing.
it is for all of us who are involved at Southwest to know that you're there praying for us and supporting us. To God be the glory, great things he's doing through Southwest Radio Ministries. Lord willing, we'll be back here Monday, ready to once again bring clarity to the chaos and head into the weekend with the encouragement that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for over 90 years by faithful listeners like you. Please visit our website, swrc.com.